Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Jonathan Cedar, co-founder of Climate Neutral. Now, this episode is going to be a little bit different because Jonathan has two hugely ambitious projects on his plate. The first, called BioLite Energy, of which he's the founder and CEO, is on a mission to provide affordable, sustainable energy to roughly half the planet that's off the grid. And the other project, called Climate Neutral, of which he's the co-founder, is on a mission to create the organic certified of climate. So in the episode, Jonathan and I will discuss shipping over a million units to over 100 countries around the world, powering over 100,000 homes across Africa with reliable household energy, the eureka moment behind Climate Neutral, what it means for brands and organizations to make the climate neutral commitment, and so much more. This is a riveting conversation in every which way, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen to it. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our interview with Jonathan Cedar, co-founder of Climate Neutral. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So Jonathan, we have a ton of ground to cover today, and I think I'd love to spend most of our conversation exploring climate neutral and what that means and why it's important. But before we get there, uh, I think it's really important to set context. So let's kick off with uh, kind of your current role as founder and CEO at BioLite. You know, what exactly that company is and why you're working on it? BioLite is a personal scale energy company helping to bring access to modern energy to cook, charge, and light life beyond the grid. And, and we built the company to help the roughly half the planet that today still cooks their meals over smoky open wood fires in their homes in developing countries. The smoke from those fires kills more people every year than HIV, TB, and malaria combined. And those same families also lack access to electricity for lighting, for mobile phone charging, for small appliances in the home. And so BioLite is on a mission to find ways to economically sustainably deliver energy access to those customers. And we do that in a in, in a kind of interesting way through a model that we call parallel innovation, where we are working in these developing nations um, selling affordable products to mostly smallholder farmers, but we jointly commercialize those technologies in U.S. and European outdoor recreation markets where we're able to essentially establish an anchor revenue stream for the business that helps us support the path to self-sustaining scale in the emerging markets. There's two important things that I want to unpack a little bit. The first one is around the problem set. Can you just briefly uh, elaborate on the repercussions of what I'll call kind of man-made energy generation, these fires. What did you mean by those causing more deaths than the slew of other health-related conditions you listed? So today in developing countries, which we also refer to as emerging markets, about half of the world's population cooks their meals over essentially campfires, right? Like open wood fires or rudimentary charcoal fires. It is in India, for example, 80% of all energy consumed in residences, and this is urban and rural alike, 80% of all residential energy is in the form of burning wood on the ground, right? So it is the dominant uh, energy 
source for for households and and you know similar to cooking on a campfire campfires produce a lot of smoke and it's really the smoke from those fires that is causing all of these profound health impacts where more than 4 million people die prematurely every year from respiratory diseases caused by smoke in the home and and that's not surprising right it's the the smoke exposure levels are are comparable to smoking two packs of cigarettes a day and so you would certainly expect anyone smoking two packs of cigarettes a day to have pretty elevated respiratory and cardiovascular health risk and that's what we see is the health burden for this half the planet that's still cooking on open fires oh my gosh okay that is i had no idea but now i can see how that makes sense and then the second piece that i found really interesting is what you dubbed parallel innovation as a means to making BioLite self-sustaining long-term. So my question for you is, how did you arrive at that strategy? Did you initially start by wanting to solve this problem in emerging markets? And then you said, oh, the kind of unit economics at scale are really hard to do without now business line B. You know, Can you just talk through your thinking there? Yeah, sure. So basically arrived at our model of parallel innovation through considering a bunch of other business models that weren't going to support a, a path to scale. And so, you know, if you look at a public interest problem like reducing smoke exposure in the home or the environmental benefits of what we do in terms of reducing deforestation and and therefore reducing carbon emissions through deforestation, you typically think of these being the job of governments um, and nonprofits. But the challenge here is the population who's using these rudimentary and and dangerous energy sources is is very vast, right? And so there really wasn't enough philanthropic money to go and try and help 3 billion people improve the fires in their home or gain access to solar panels for electricity in their home. And so, yes, we could maybe help some hundreds or low numbers of thousands of people improve their, you know, their cooking and lighting in their homes through philanthropic dollars, but we weren't going to reach millions, let alone hundreds of millions. And so that really pushed me to focus on how do we align the solutions that we create to these problems with the economic value it creates for the end user, right? And at the time that we were getting started, it was 2009 which is when we really started to see the very rapid growth of cell phones in developing countries, which, which was, I think, kind of counterintuitive on two levels. One, you don't typically think of people who live in unelectrified homes and have very low incomes as being customers for high-tech electronics, electronics that might cost 30 or $40. The other piece was that these families don't have electricity, so how do you keep these phones charged? And we saw that people were willing to go to great lengths to charge their cell phones because those products were so incredibly valuable for them. And so I think it really shifted perspective um, as we saw hundreds of millions of people adopt cell phones year over year that, A, if you could deliver something that was sufficiently valuable these families would find the money to pay for it and would gladly pay for it. And, and B, that, you know, there was a real paradox between energy demand in the home and energy availability. And that, to, you know, to kind of help these families take the next modernizing steps in their lives, energy access was, was going to be a real crux issue. So how did you actually 
or initially stumble upon the problem set. I mean, today it seems blatantly obvious that this is a massive problem and opportunity. But back in 2009, what's that eureka moment around the opportunity? Yeah, so this all started, so I, I began my career as a, a product development engineer for a design firm in New York. And, you know, we were helping companies like OXO, who makes all the ergonomic household goods, uh, improve daily daily objects for people, right? And so we were making better potato peelers and better scissors and staplers and better trash cans. And And it's not that that stuff is not valuable. It is. It's just we were making incremental improvements to solutions that were already pretty good for people. And so I, I learned a huge amount there, but I definitely had a sense of feeling like my skills as an engineer could maybe go a little bit further solving problems for, for people whose problems hadn't been solved so many times. And the way specifically we got into, we got introduced to the issue of smoke pollution in the home was I was working with a friend at the design firm, my co-founder at Biolite, a guy named Alec Drummond, on a camping stove. We're both avid campers. We kind of liked the idea of being more sustainable and not using petroleum to cook on. And so we were working on a small wood-burning stove just, just for ourselves for fun. And we took that stove to a conference on advanced wood combustion, and two very serendipitous things happened. One is it turned out the conference was not about wood combustion just for the technology's sake, but advanced wood combustion to save the millions of people who were being exposed to these high levels of emissions in their homes in developing countries. And that was honestly a happy accident that we learned about the severity and importance of that problem um, at that conference. The other thing that happened was the funny prototype of a wood-burning stove we were working on just for our own personal use was using a cool technology called thermoelectrics that allowed us to generate electricity from the fire and use that electricity to power a fan that could essentially reburn the smoke in the fire and, and therefore reduce emissions substantially. And this was the cleanest technology this group had seen by about a factor of 10, and it didn't require external electricity. And I wish I could say we figured that out because we were super smart and we were working first and foremost to solve the needs of, of, of folks you know, off the grid in Africa. But the, the truth is we were working on a problem for ourselves and and ended up uncovering a, a much, much larger and more important opportunity. I mean, it was, it was at that conference that both myself and my partner, Alec, decided this is what we wanted to dedicate our careers to. And just to give our listeners a sense of scale, you know, how many people across the world are using one of BioLite's products? Because there's quite a few. Sure. So as a company, we've shipped about a million products into about 100 countries over the last 10 years. Out of curiosity, um, in the African markets, what does infrastructure look like? How does it compare to you know, a country like US or some of the, the Western European countries? Is it, is it a different type of establishment that you uh, work with to distribute to cities, towns, and villages across Africa? You know, what, what does the infrastructure look like there? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess speaking first about municipal infrastructure and then about retail and distribution infrastructure separately, you know, infrastructure in the cities looks very similar to the U.S., right? There's electricity, there's self-service. If you have enough money, you can um, have gas for cooking. 
So the cities look relatively similar, but as soon as you start to get out into, you know, the suburbs and the rural areas, which are are much larger fractions overall of these developing countries, the grid falls away very quickly, right? So we've got about a billion and a half people who live beyond the reach of electricity coming over power lines. And the population is growing more quickly than the grid extension. So the number of people who will remain unelectrified for the next 30 to 40 years looks pretty similar to what it is today, right? So we're we're about a billion and a half people who need access to energy. The other thing that changes is cooking once you're below, you know, maybe five or $6,000 a year of income, which the majority of BioLite's customers live below the poverty line. So in Kenya, the poverty line is $3.10 a day, and about 60% of BioLite's customers make less than $3.10 a day. Most of those customers can't afford gas for cooking, and so they're cooking on either wood or charcoal. So that's that's, you know, these things that typically come out of the holes in the walls in our in our homes, right? Like the electricity comes out of a hole in the wall, the water comes out of a hole in the wall, and the gas comes out of a hole in the wall. And, you know, we send a very small fraction of our income to, you know, the utility company to pay for that looks entirely different once you're outside of the main cities in most of the countries that we work in. Similarly, product distribution also looks very different. There are certainly supermarkets in the urban areas where you can, supermarkets and department stores where you can go and buy products. But as soon as you get out to the rural areas, the amount of product availability drops off very quickly. And so for us, most of our products are sold through maybe something you might describe a little bit more like an Avon model of sales, where it's sales agents going you know, from farm to farm, educating rural consumers on how to improve their access to electricity or improve their cooking energy, and then making those transactions, if not at the customer's home, very close to the customer's home. And so that's one difference. It's a little bit more, it's not like people are going to large retailers like REI. It's certainly not like they're making online purchases through Amazon. And then the other piece that's very different in the African markets context for our business is these products are are fairly expensive, right, as a fraction of someone's income. So our solar lighting systems, for example, cost about $100. So for a family that's making $2,000 a year, that's about 5% of their annual income. And these customers need a loan typically to purchase these products in the same way that you know many Americans choose to lease a car instead of buy a car or have a mortgage for their home instead of buying their home in cash. And so all of our retail partners in Africa or sorry, our distribution partners, I should say, also have the ability to make small micro loans to the end customer so that the customer can, let's say, buy a $100 solar lighting system, but pay for it over two years as they realize the the cost savings of not buying kerosene, for example, or not buying batteries. Fundamentally, when we think about what's going to make a customer happy or how they're going to make a purchase decision, it's almost exactly the same as it is in the U.S. It's just a bigger decision because it's a higher fraction of their income over there. So, Jonathan, I'd love to segue to Climate Neutral because I first learned about you when I saw Climate Neutral's you know big announcement in the Kickstarter launch, which looks to be a massive success, which is amazing to see. But I want to zoom into the early days. And I was hoping if you could help me connect the dots between BioLite and Climate Neutral. 
How, how did that actually come to be? I'll start from our personal experience and then and then sort of share how that came together with peak design in the formation of climate neutral. But for, for BioLite's personal experience, you know, we are we are incorporated as a social enterprise. All of BioLite's venture capital investors are social impact investors. And so from day one, we've always had a triple bottom line view of the business where, yes, economically, this business needs to be self-sustaining in order to scale our impact. But impact is something we track very carefully and both in terms of optimizing for public health outcomes, but also environmental outcomes. And so since very early on in our business, we've been measuring how much CO2 is avoided when someone uses our stoves in Africa, right? Because if you're using half as much wood and therefore you're cutting down half as many trees, there's a net carbon savings there that can be quantified. And so since the very beginning, so for almost 10 years now, we have been using third-party auditors to measure how much CO2 is avoided when customers use our products in Africa. And, and what's really cool is for every stove we sell somebody, the amount of emissions that are avoided is about equivalent to a U.S. automobile. So like a pretty substantial amount of carbon savings there. And then about five years ago, we, we got curious and said, okay, well, we know we're saving a bunch of CO2 how much CO2 are we emitting in the process of trying to save CO2, right? So what does it cost us from a CO2 standpoint to run our business, to fly to meet with customers, and to purchase raw materials, right? All these things. And we, we learned a couple of things. One is we learned that the vast majority of our climate impact as a business comes from the raw materials that we purchase and turning those you know, raw materials into products. So like 80% of the emissions we make as a business have to do with the making of our products. Uh, and then the, you know, the other 20% has to do with how we ship them and how we commute and things like that. But the vast majority of this was baked into our products. The other thing that we recognized, which is I think a unique opportunity for BioLite is we, for every one ton of CO2 we emit to run our business, our products save 17 tons of CO2 in their operation in the world. So that was really exciting for us. And when we said, well, maybe we have an opportunity because we're generating all of these carbon savings to describe our business as, as carbon neutral by essentially retiring what would have been carbon credits into the market to offset our own footprint. So we, we've been sort of doing what we have later come to recommend other companies doing climate neutral for about five years at BioLite, where you know our business avoids more emissions than it creates. So you you you've been thinking about what I well I'll consider kind of the the carbon this carbon like math equation. You know, you want to make sure that you've been either offsetting or saving more than what you've been kind of expelling or admitting. How how does this interest then materialize into climate neutral and then two how did you and Peter arrive at this approach specifically? Yeah. Well, so we've been trying to communicate and popularize our, our emissions measurement and, and disclosure approach for a while. So for five years now, we've been publishing a company sustainability report. We've run lots of campaigns trying to get out and speak as loudly as we can as a small brand about the importance of measuring 
and being public about your business's relationship to CO2. And I think one thing we realized is it's really, really hard story. Most of our customers and most of the general public really doesn't understand where CO2 emissions come from inside of a business, what's a good footprint, what's a bad footprint. And and for we're not the only people who do this, to be sure, but most businesses are talking about this as a unique story to their business, which means if you want to learn about carbon neutrality from BioLite, you've got to go and read our 10-page white paper, and then you got to go do the same thing for all birds, and then you got to go do the same thing for peak design. And, you know, if every time you wanted to buy an organic banana, you had to read a 10-page white paper to decide whether you believed it was an organic banana, like, it would slow the sale of bananas, right? And so I, I, I would say that we've just been experiencing the complexity of, of building consumer trust around carbon neutrality for, for, a, for a while. And so I guess it was about two years ago now, I met up with Peter Daring, who is the founder of Peak Design. And he had just completed a full life cycle assessment, which is one approach to measuring the CO2 emissions of your business. He had just completed a, a very comprehensive uh, life cycle analysis for his business. And he had sort of this number of what their emissions were. And came and approached me and said, hey, we, we just finished this assessment. We're thinking about using carbon offsets to erase our emissions or essentially to pay for our emissions. What do you think about that as an approach? And I said, well, actually, we think that's a really great approach. And in fact, it's, you know, this is, this is a practice that we've undertaken voluntarily for the last bunch of years. And so Peter and I started saying to each other, well, man, it's really not that hard to measure your footprint as a business. And there are all of these carbon offsets available to essentially help help the economy pay for the reduction of CO2 where it is most cost effective. That, that's essentially what an offset is, right? Is maybe it would cost you $1,000 to put a CO2 sequestering filter on your smokestack at your factory, but it might only cost me $5 to save that same ton of CO2 by selling someone a clean cook stove, right? And so how do we how do we essentially reduce carbon in the most economically efficient ways inside of the market? And so both BioLite and Peak Design recognize that every business should be footprinting, every business should be paying within a market system for the carbon emissions that they create. And then I think the piece that we really came to together was we needed a much simpler language to describe this process to consumers so that, you know, buying a carbon responsible product can be as simple as buying an organic banana. And so that was that was really the impetus for climate neutral as we said, okay, well, how do we make it really simple for companies to know how to measure themselves? How do we make it really simple to connect companies to high quality carbon offsets to pay for those emissions? And then how do we build a consumer facing label like certified organic that helps make, you know, helps customers make really confident, informed decisions in their wow. consumption. Okay. I have a ton of kind of supplementary questions to build off of this. I want to start with doing the full cycle assessment because for most people, including myself, right, I run a climate solution podcast and many times I find it's kind of this pseudoscience, this pseudo math around evaluating one's climate footprint. So can you just 
break down for the layperson what goes in to putting a pound figure, right, that output on an organization's or an individual's climate footprint? We should start with acknowledging no matter how carefully you measure the carbon of your business, it should be described as an estimate, right? And the question is how accurate is that estimate? But there is no 100% accurate carbon footprint. There are only good and less good estimations of this. And, and so I think that's one thing that we need to get comfortable with is perfection is not the goal. Progress is the goal when it comes to carbon measurement. And so how far is far enough to, to feel like we've got a, a good actionable picture? And, and our feeling is if you can get to about an 80% level of accuracy, then that's probably good enough for your business. And, and maybe you get to 80% and you round up a little bit to say we're, we're more likely to be offsetting more than we're emitting, right? So we're more likely to be climate positive than climate negative. So, so that's, that's one thing is I think getting comfortable with the uncertainty and not being dissuaded by the fact that, that perfection is not an option here. So, so then with that assumption in hand, there are two different ways to look at carbon measurement. One is essentially a top-down view and one is a bottoms-up view. And in general, the bottoms-up view is the more accurate one, but the top-down view can give you a very quick approximation. And so the top-down view, I'll just mention quickly because it's, it's, it's less our focus, would be by looking inside of, there's very good understandings, for example, of what the U.S.'s total CO2 emissions are, right? We just look at all of the fossil fuels that are produced and all of the land use considerations for CO2, either sequestration or emission, and you add those up and you kind of know what the U.S.'s total emissions profile is, right? Like that's a pretty accurate number. The question is what fraction of that um, is my business, right? Which is a little bit harder to estimate. And so there have been third-party groups that have looked by sort of industry and product type and said, okay, well, all of the luggage produced in the U.S. roughly has this many inputs and this many outputs, and therefore the luggage sector on a per dollar basis has this kind of carbon intensity. So that, that's what's called an IO analysis. And that's a very good way to get a loose approximation of what your, if you are typical of your industry, what your emissions profile would look like per dollar spent. The more specific way to evaluate a company's emissions are bottoms up or what, what gets called life cycle assessment. And for that, what you really are doing is you're taking an inventory of all of the materials and actions taken by a business and assigning carbon equivalency to either those specific materials or those specific actions. And so there are, again, there are research institutes that say in producing one kilogram of aluminum in China, this is how much fossil fuel was consumed in that process. And therefore, this is the carbon intensity of one kilogram of aluminum in China, which is different than one kilogram of aluminum in, you know, Malaysia, right? Based on, on what the like energy source mix is inside of that country. And so, so you can come up with these things that are called emissions factors that help you convert all of the materials or activities in your business to a carbon equivalency. And it's just adding those up. So BioLite used you know, 
I'm making these numbers up, but we use 10,000 kilograms of aluminum and 20,000 kilograms of steel, and we processed them using these kinds of molding techniques that have these, you know, per cycle this much energy and therefore carbon. We then look at things like how many containers did we ship by boat? How many pounds of product did we ship by air? How long was each of those distances? And so we actually go through and we say, okay, we made 25,000 e-commerce shipments last year. Here's the origin zip code and the destination zip code. Here's the weight of that package. And we do the math and say, okay, well, this, this traveled this many kilogram miles um, on this kind of mode of transportation. And, and, and so we do a full inventory from the bottoms up, and that adds up to a specific figure. So for example, in 2018, BioLite emitted just over 4,000 tons of CO2 in the operations of our business. Fundamentally, we're really interested in that bottoms-up approach, but that top-down is a very is is a quick way to calibrate roughly what your footprint is. So, now that climate neutral is an available option to companies across industry, can you walk me through the process if I wanted to become climate neutral? Kind of what's step one through three? I think coming back to what we felt was missing in the marketplace when we started climate neutral. So step one was. You know, BioLite is lucky that it has a full-time carbon expert on staff, just given the nature of the business we do in Africa. But most businesses don't have that. And so what is a simple tool that doesn't mean you need a full-time headcount, which for small company is very expensive, that can allow you to measure your footprint so you actually have a number to work from. And so the first thing Climate Neutral did is we built a, a footprinting tool that could get businesses from you know, roughly between $5 million and $100 million of revenue, how to, how to get a business like that a pretty efficient footprint in a fairly short order that got to like an 80% level of accuracy. And so, so we've uh, built a tool that we call the brand emissions estimator that can do that, right? That, that's a starting point. That's something that really wasn't available in the market. You either could do these very, very loose assessments based on IO data which kind of gave you like an order of magnitude level of accuracy, not within 20% level of accuracy. Or you could hire these very expensive LCA consultants for several hundred thousand dollars to evaluate your business. And, and we felt like small and medium enterprises needed a self-serve option that was more affordable. So that's the first thing we did. So, so we've created a tool to help companies efficiently measure themselves. The next piece that we're doing is we ask companies to set reduction targets. So it's not enough just to pay for your emissions, but you need to look at that emissions inventory and say, well, where can I be doing better with available technologies today? So how do I really focus on improving my supply planning process so that more of my product is shipping via sea freight rather than air freight? How do I look for recycled materials in the market because I know my materials purchases are a big piece of my carbon footprint? And so we ask companies to set very specific annual reduction targets and to disclose them publicly on our website. Then the next piece is, unfortunately, there aren't really options available to operate at you know, carbon neutrality today, right? So even if you buy a recycled steel, there's still a bunch of energy that went into recycling that, and most of that energy today is still coming from non-renewables. You know, there are not completely emissions-free methods of shipping or transit today. And so no matter what, all of these businesses still end up with some pretty substantial fraction of their emissions that they can't reduce to zero. 
And so for that fraction of your emissions, what we ask companies to do is to buy high quality carbon offsets so that you're starting to put a price on carbon and create market incentives for other businesses to build carbon limiting or carbon sequestering technologies. What does that mean exactly? Just can you give a couple examples of what those projects might be? I'll give one example. You can build a landfill that is open to the air. And so as the garbage in the landfill degrades over time, it's producing methane. And that methane is a pretty potent climate warmer with a CO2 equivalency that's very high. And that stuff just goes straight into the atmosphere and and warms the planet. It is cheaper in a world where CO2 has no price or methane has no price to just let that stuff evaporate into the air. What, what an offset might do there is help that landfill pay for the difference between operating an uncapped landfill and paying to cover that landfill with a tarp that traps the methane and then can pipe that methane out to be used in either energy production or turned into other byproducts that are not climate warming. And so what a carbon credit would do is it would help pay that landfill developer to cover that landfill and do it in a more climate-friendly way. Because certainly doing that has a cost to that landfill developer, but unless you put a price on CO2, there's no business incentive to do it. Similarly, development of, of you know solar and wind programs in places where perhaps the fossil fuel energy price is still lower than the renewables energy price. So how do we say, well, this, this, these renewables are doing a valuable service in that they are not emitting these, these greenhouse gases. How do we help pay for that difference to incentivize more wind and solar development rather than coal and natural gas development? And so the, the UN has built a set of, of protocols that help identify and measure these carbon savings activities and to validate the quantitative number of tons of emissions that those activities have avoided. And then those can get essentially commodified into what are known as carbon credits. But a carbon credit is essentially just a certification that a ton of emissions was avoided inside of a given project. I think the really important and interesting piece of the climate neutral opportunity specifically around businesses that are interested in, A, understanding their footprint and then reducing over a period of time. We're at this kind of interesting inflection point in consumer interest, especially as Gen Z ages and becomes kind of authoritative spending cohort. Is They're really concerned about climate, which means that they're going to be making decisions based on that criteria. And not only does climate neutral give companies the tools to, you know, audit themselves and better understand, you know, where they stand today and how they can improve, but in many ways, I could see how this also benefits the businesses if customers are going to be making decisions around, you know, whether or not a company is climate neutral or not. It is in the company's best interest to seek out that certification, adhere to the kind of set of criteria that's uh, understood and agreed upon. Uh, So in turn, that they could improve their bottom line. It's really a win-win across the board. 
I, I think that's right. I, I would say that I think it's a win-win for the first half of companies that adopt this, and it's a liability for the second half of companies that adopt this. And so let, let's take some, some examples from the past. So fair trade as an example, right? The fact that um, everyone in your supply chain adheres to fair labor standards and safety standards and that a fair fraction of the value from your business is shared with the last mile producers, that, that's a very that's become a popular concept, particularly around certain agricultural products. But it's not like you see consumers today applauding a business for not using child labor, right? Like we just say, of course, we don't use child labor. It's it's an unreasonable, unfair, cruel practice. And And so I think if you're the first company to get out and say, we want to be proactive about this negative consequence of our business and really manage it, then consumers applaud you and say, thank goodness someone's finally addressing this. Once it becomes a table stake that all businesses need to manage these negative externalities of their business and you're the last business not to manage it, that's a liability, right? Um, and, and so I, I think, yes, I think in these early years, this is this is a big opportunity for the brands that act quickly to gain market share. But over the long run, fundamentally, we just see this as a table stake, right? This is basic responsibility. It's not, it's not necessarily something you deserve to be patted on the back for. That's a great point. I'd love to uh, segue slightly to kind of where Climate Neutral stands today. Can you just give a sense of how many companies have made commitments to the effort? And if there's a kind of couple name brands, feel free to list those as well. Yeah, sure. So today we, we ended 2019, which was our first, which was our launch year with just under 100 brands signed up. And, and that sign up is a commitment to measure their 2019 emissions in full offset 100% of those emissions, and then label their products as climate neutral with our brand label. So we've got about 100 companies on board. Some of the largest of those companies are Allbirds Shoes, Kickstarter, Numi Tea, Clean Canteen, obviously Peak Design and BioLite are our members. So those those are some of the larger brands that are involved. Avocado Mattresses, which is a Casper competitor. We've got a little bit over half a billion dollars of revenue represented by these companies, and that represents about a half a million tons of CO2 emissions that will be offset this year through the companies in the climate neutral portfolio. Jonathan. Can we just take a second to say, hell yeah. I mean, honestly, shout out to these companies for taking a stand, making the commitments in writing, right? And also to you guys for doing this in the first place. So I just have two more questions before we part ways. I see a a really interesting crop of startups that are coming out of the Valley and other pockets of the world that are trying to build out kind of the first consumer application around carbon offsets. Uh, you see Ren, there's quite a few more. I'm interested, what, what's your take on the consumer approach to carbon offsets? And you know, is this something that's that we're going to see you know, grow into a meaningful business? That's a good question. My feeling is we probably, certainly we need a label that relates to carbon in the same way that, you know, we have labels that relate to organic, right? Customers are confused about how to make climate responsible purchases. And we need a system 
and, and probably a pretty limited system, as in not too many flavors of it, that helps consumers understand what choices they're making or make choices that are more aligned with their values. So I, I do think that that is a critical missing link. And that's that's clearly the piece that we're trying to solve for at, at Climate Neutral. I think things like um, red are really valuable as well. But ultimately, uh, our perspective is this is a stepping stone, right? And this is a way, ultimately, CO2 should be regulated by governments in a way that is mandatory, not voluntary. And you know, in, in the way that in the U.S. labor standards are. And so our goal is to use climate neutral to build so much momentum, to have so many businesses and consumers say, this is important to us. We are willing to spend the extra, you know, one cent per dollar to pay for the emissions that we are creating to be avoided and reduced and, and to pay for the development of new supply chain technologies that will make lower carbon intensity products of the future. You know, we start with consumers and businesses leading by example, but ultimately um, our goal is to see the government step up and regulate this so it's not just the early adopters or just the businesses that are willing to lead with their values, but something that as a society we say we all should abide by. That's a great point. I want to to hit home one more piece because I think what people will find in Climate Neutral, and for anyone listening, go to climateneutral.org. You can learn more. You can see all the brands that have committed. You can see you can learn more about the story if the podcast has been kind of insufficient in any way. But I want to understand how Climate Neutral becomes self-sustaining long-term because I, I really believe it is one of the more important projects that we'll see in this decade and many, hopefully for kind of many decades to come. What is the plan around making climate neutral sustainable long-term? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Honestly, it's one that we're still, we're still working through. So I, I would say that, you know, we talked a bunch in the beginning of the interview about BioLite and why BioLite was built as a for-profit business. And, and that the answer was, we needed to make physical things that cost a lot of money every time you make one of them and billions of people needed them, right? So we had to replicate that expensive investment process, you know, millions or hundreds of millions of times to service the market. I think climate neutral is in a very different position where really what we're creating is an idea and a very simple set of tools that once they're built, it doesn't cost any more for one person to use them or a million people to use them, right? It, it's the cost of building at once, and then the replication is completely free. And so I think climate neutral is in a much better place to operate on a nonprofit basis than a hardware business where every unit of impact comes with, with a physical cost. And so our goal is to, to set the bar as low as possible or to set the hurdle as low as possible for companies to participate, right? Where we say, the only thing you need to do is motivate to do the measurement. We'll pay for the tool. Then, you know, businesses do need to pay for their CO2, but Climate Neutral does not pay for that for them. So on average, we see that being something like 0.2% percent of revenue, something like that. It's not even a full percent of revenue. Is that today's carbon prices, what it costs to pay for that? And we're hoping that we can fund that philanthropically. And so to date, 
Most of our funding has generously come from Peak Design, who Peak Design is member of 1% for the Planet, and Climate Neutral is a valid nonprofit to um, support with 1% for the Planet dollars. So, so that's been our primary source of funding to date, and that's what's funded the, the four staff members that we have working full-time on Climate Neutral and the contractors who've helped us build our software tools. You know, BioLite contributes, you know, in a much more modest way financially, given that we're still an early-stage venture-backed startup. So I think there's a question, possibly, we'll be able to raise some more philanthropic dollars. And we think at about $2 million a year, we can run this nonprofit to deliver all of the benefit that's required. So compared to the impact potential, a pretty low price tag. But if we find that we're not able to raise those philanthropic dollars, we would consider some very modest costs to do things like use our measurement tool. But our first goal is to be able to deliver that purely philanthropically. And, and to date, we've certainly been able to do that for those, you know, these first hundred brands. And I think we have a path to being able to do that for the first thousand brands. And it's really a question of, you know, can we raise that small amount of incremental philanthropy to be able to go all the way to scale? Or will we need to ask our brands for some small contribution but either way, it's a very, very economically efficient way to deliver impact because fundamentally what we're doing is we are, we're writing the roadmap and then every business has its own responsibility to follow it. Jonathan, I'm serious. This is one of the most important projects that I've came across and now I've had the pleasure of speaking to one of the pioneers and I really do appreciate it. I want to lay out the red carpet for you before we part ways. Can you just rattle off if, if there's any kind of specific call to actions, how can people help climate neutral? Is there hiring needs? Are you in the process of, like you said, you know, raising funds and from a f- philanthropic perspective, please let our listeners know how they can help. I think the most important thing our, our listeners can do is help us spread the word. You know, these are important decisions that need to be taken first and foremost by business leaders, but business leaders respond to their customers. And so if you have a favorite brand that is not yet climate neutral certified, tweet at them. Say, hey, you know, you want my purchase next year? This is criteria for me being your customer next year. I think if you know of brands that are already taking really responsible climate actions but are not being as clear with their consumers as they could be with, for example, a certification label like climate neutral, go to those brands and say, hey, I love what you're doing but not enough people understand it. Adopt a label that helps us speak with a clear voice on on climate action. I think that is the most valuable thing that our listeners can do is, is help help us get more brands on board with this mission because at the end of the day, um, this really is a critical mass problem, right? We, we need to get to that tipping point where this is something consumers can expect from any brand that they work with. And in order to do that, we need to have that critical mass of brands that says this is a table stake. Jonathan Cedar, founder and CEO of BioLite and also co-founder of Climate Neutral. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. I really do appreciate it. Oh, thank, thank you for having me. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at In Good Hands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode. 
and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A. Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.